Section 10 of The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories by Joel Chandler Harris. The Whims of Captain McCarthy. Part 1. Colonel Albert Lamar of Georgia, who was secretary or clerk of the Confederate Senate at Richmond, used to tell his intimate friends that the mystery of Philip Doyle was one of the few things in his experience that had kept him awake a nights. Those who have followed the course of the preceding narratives will remember Mr. Doyle as the obliging gentleman who was kind enough to afford Francis Bethune an opportunity to run his neck in a halter. This mystery, briefly stated, was this. Given the fact that Mr. Doyle was in the employ of the Federal Secret Service, how did he manage to obtain an important position in one of the departments of the Confederate government? It should be remembered that up to the moment when one of Captain McCarthy's clerks in the New York Hotel interpreted the cipher dispatch which had been entrusted to young Bethune, there were but two men in the Confederacy who suspected Mr. Doyle. One of these was Colonel Lamar, and the other was John Amahundro, who, while acting as one of Jeb Stuart's scouts, was also connected with the Confederate Secret Service. Doyle seemed to be high in the confidence of the chiefs of the various bureaus, but Colonel Lamar soon discovered that this impression had been produced by Doyle himself not alone by his attitude and manner, but by his general conversation. Inquiry also developed the fact that none of Doyle's superiors knew anything about him beyond the fact that he had managed by some means or other to secure a position to which were attached few duties and a very comfortable salary. Colonel Lamar, who seemed to be always taking his time, was one of the most indefatigable of workers. His easy-going and genial manner was a cloak to a temperament at once fiery and reckless. Step by step he pushed his way back through various channels of information, until he found that Mr. Doyle had been appointed on the recommendation of a firm of London bankers which was not as prominent in the financial world then as it is today. Of course, this firm had connections with Wall Street, just as it had with all the money centers of the world. But the problem that presented itself to the mind of Colonel Lamar was this. Why did this British firm desire to have Mr. Doyle appointed to a position which was a very responsible one, even if its duties were light. Now, the present writer has no intention of uncovering and parading in print the various interesting facts which this investigation brought to light. 
The details do not belong to history as it is written. Almost without exception, since money became a power, the real politicians in all ages and countries have been, and are, the leading financiers. Since the dawn of civilization, history has been made up of conclusions and deductions that are not only superficial, but false. Your true historian will be the man who is fortunate enough to gain access to the records of the most powerful financial institutions of the various nations of the earth. The great political leaders of the world who have not been dominated by the financiers may be numbered on the fingers of your hands. Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and a few others. This is true not because politicians are corrupt, though many of them fall in that category, but because the financial interests of the world are more powerful, and in the minds of a majority of men more important than all the superficial issues of politics. Thus it is that parties, political contests, wars, and all great movements are so manipulated by the masterminds of finance that neither the beneficiaries nor the victims have any notion of the real issues that have been contended for or the results that have been brought about. These manipulations do not constitute. They are the origin of history, and it is only occasionally that they may be said to become obvious. Sufficient has been said to indicate why the facts and names which yielded themselves up to the pressure of Colonel Lamar's energetic investigations cannot be made public. It should be said, in Mr. Doyle's behalf, that he, himself, had no actual knowledge of the real interests he was serving. He had very genuine feelings of patriotism, those feelings which cool heads and masterminds find it so easy to take advantage of. He was heartily for the Union, and in addition to that, he was ambitious to rise and shine in the service to which he was devoting himself. Indeed, it was his personal ambition that destroyed his usefulness at the Confederate capital. He had a great deal more adroitness and dexterity in his profession than has been indicated, but he was anxious to attract Mr. Stanton's attention, and he supposed that something sensational was necessary to that end. The trap he laid for Francis Bethune would have succeeded beyond all question if his scheme had provided against such a contingency, for instance, as Mr. Sanders. In the nature of things, this was impossible, for the reason that the personality of Mr. Sanders was unique. Nor could Mr. Doyle provide against the swift suspicions of John Amahandro. Nevertheless, when all his energies were aroused, Philip Doyle was a very shrewd and capable man. The morning after Bethune and Mr. Sanders started on their journey, he got hold of a piece of information that seemed to him to be of the utmost importance. Quite by accident, he learned of the Bureau of the Confederate Secret Service, which had its headquarters in the New York Hotel. 
Careful inquiry in the right direction enabled him to procure a list of the officers and employees serving this bureau. Now this was information of the first class, and Mr. Doyle deemed it of sufficient importance to justify his prompt retirement from Richmond. He was delayed for several days by urgent business, but, as we have seen, he arrived in Washington on the night that President Lincoln insisted on having himself kidnapped. The next morning his presence became known to Amahandro, who carried this information to McCarthy's lieutenant at the federal capitol. The day after, this advertisement appeared in the personal column of the New York Herald. To Terence Nagel, late of Augusta, Georgia. Jack sends this message to Mac. Fix up the house for company and be sure the dishes are washed clean. The web pattern doilies should be well laundried. Jack. This advertisement appeared twice, and on its second appearance it caught the eye of a cabman who was waiting for a fare near the New York Hotel. He dismounted from his seat and sauntered toward the entrance, where a porter was sweeping. "'Where's the Nagel lad?' he asked. The porter looked around. "'Answerin' a bell. I don't know. So I'd have a word with him when it's convenient.' The cabman went back to his vehicle and paced up and down beside it. Presently, Terence came to the door, flourishing a whisk-broom. "'Oh, tis you, Mike. Have you seen the Herald to-day?' He took it from his pocket and laid his heavy forefinger upon the advertisement. Terence scanned it carefully. Then he laughed and held up both hands in admiration. "'What a man is Captain Mack!' he exclaimed. "'He heard the news ahead of the editor, upon me soul he did. "'Before the breakfast hour, yesterday morning, and the clean-up was all over and done with, "'and the woodman and the boys was gone. "'And Terence left in the lurch, me gobs,' said the cabman. "'In the lurch, is it?' retorted Terence, glowing with good humour. Says the captain to me, my lad, I'm loving you for to do the head work, he says. You have a cool head, he says, a keen eye, and a clean mind, he says, and I'm trusting in ye discreetness altogether. Did he say that now? cried the cabman, appearing to be highly pleased. He did, replied Terence, and he said more. He said, says he, Do you give me regards to Mike and the boys, he says, and tell them for to tip Terence the wink when they have fares for 231 Plaisel Avenue, Brooklyn. Be gobs will do it, said Mike, the cabman. If there's no more'n four, you're to give me the wink, drive about a bit, and then take em straight to the number well, they'll find wrist and refreshment for man and baste. And if me two eyes tell me no lies, the chance is running right at your head foremost. 
this last remark was made pertinent by the appearance of two men in the doorway of the hotel one of them turned back to buy a couple of cigars the other came toward the cab just then terence was hitting the rolled curtains of the vehicle a lick or two with the whisk broom and saying if you were a bit tidier maybe you'd play to a bigger audience he turned when the gentleman came up are you acquainted with brooklyn asked the newcomer twas there i lived when i first landed replied the cabman well my friend and i want to go to two thirty one plaisdell avenue are you acquainted with the locality i know it well enough to drive you there sir uh, but you'll find it cheaper to go by bus and ferry but we're in a hurry the gentleman explained we have a friend there who may perhaps desire to return with us the cabman bowed and opened the door of his vehicle from under his own seat he drew a duster and with this he carefully brushed the cushions inside this done the two gentlemen took their seats and the cab moved off in this case the cabman had been under no necessity of tipping the wink to terence the bell-boy that lively lad had been on hand with his ears open and in answer to an imaginary summons from the office he went running into the hotel i'm for brooklyn sir he said to the clerk and that functionary smiled and bowed an affable consent but an instant was required for terence to change his blouse working jacket for coat and waistcoat running out through the ladies entrance he climbed to the side of a burly-looking cabman said something in his ear which caused him to arouse himself with a smile he looked at his watch as he gathered up the reins and smacked his lips over his white face his cab was drawn by two horses and they seemed to be very spirited animals when in motion now barney do you know what's to be done asked terence if mike knows as well replied barney both jobs'll be done well but mind you what chasin's to be done must be done in the village where there's nothing but preachers and babies mike knows said terence confidently then we'll be first at the finish with forty-five minutes to spare does the old man need more than that terence laughed exultantly says cap'n mac says he give me ten minutes me lad says he and we'll have court in session when our friends come he says as barney with his two smart horses was turning out of broadway to go into a street where there were fewer obstacles he nudged his companion and pointed with his whip a block away mike and his fares had been caught in one of the jams for which the lower part of broadway is famous this particular jam seemed to be as impassable as a lumber boom and it was all occasioned by a half dozen words in gaelic spoken to the drivers of two big trucks the cabman and the two truckmen shook their fists at one another defiantly and used language which to say the least was not invented in the mild atmosphere of the parlor the blockade attracted attention for several blocks it had sprung up as it were unexpectedly it was begun and carried out with great vehemence of language and gesture 
a half-dozen policemen men of long experience in such matters did their utmost to straighten out matters and provide a channel for traffic if the jam had occurred at a crossing all would have been well but its centre was in the middle of two long blocks and the vehicles that were caught in it found it impossible to beat a retreat what's the trouble asked one of mike's passengers putting his head out of the window tis the divil and all to pay sir answered mike looking at his watch ten minutes and more had been gained he nodded his head to truckman number one who waved his hand at truckman number two then hi there said number one look sharp there cried number two and lo what the policeman had failed to do was accomplished in five minutes for in that space of time the blockade melted away and traffic resumed its tireless march the ferry at which mike the cabman crossed was thirty minutes farther from plaisdell avenue than the one at which barney and terence had crossed and he made the distance still longer by indulging in some of those tricks of driving that are part of the cabman's trade finally however the vehicle drew up at two thirty one and mike dismounted from the seat to open the door you will wait for us said the gentleman who had engaged the cab will you be long sir mike's tone was extremely solicitous as he consulted his watch why no replied the gentleman who had acted throughout as spokesman as much as an hour sir insisted the cabman why certainly not ten minutes at the most the gentleman asserted oh see remarked the cabman and he regarded the two men with an expression on his face which they remembered afterward end of section ten